electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is the American Greed Podcast, presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach. In this episode of American Greed, fugitive Jason Derrick Brown is a Mormon missionary turned party king. From ski trips on the boats to nights out at the bars to motorcycling and ATVing in the desert, he wanted to be the life of the party. Jason's playboy life is bankrolled by a series of scams. But when money gets tight, he plots his most elaborate scheme yet. When people are in desperate situations, they do desperate things. Oh, this guy, I mean, he's just, oh, man, we gotta get an ambulance here, he's dying. He was down that alley on his bicycle and long gone. And he's a ghost after that. It's the morning of November 29th, 2004, in Phoenix, Arizona. A Dunbar armored car is making the rounds in a Tony section of town called Awatuki. The truck's driver, James Duncan, has been on the job for just three weeks. He relies on his partner, Robert Keith Palomares, to show him the ropes. It was my first time on that route, first time I had met him. I didn't know the area, so he'd be like, turn left here, turn right there, let's go around here, park the uh, vehicle here. Palomares is the hopper, the employee who hops off the truck and collects deposits from the stores and restaurants. We just talked in the whole way about everything that we both had going on in our lives. He was from Southern California, he was about the same age as me, and he just really seemed like a really nice guy. The route is busy this day. It's the Monday after Thanksgiving weekend, the kickoff to the holiday shopping season. The biggest collection of the day is expected to be the movie theater at the east end of the mall. The cinema's receipts could be as much as $100,000. Palomares tells Duncan to pull into the theater's drop-off lane. He told me the you know, go in, you know, through this little driveway area and just park it here. It's like, I'm going to go through this door and I'll be back in a, in a few minutes. The walk to the movie theater is winding, a 100-foot journey across a courtyard in between some ticket kiosks. Paul Dalton is a detective with the Phoenix Police Department. Keith normally would have his bag. He's armed. He has his vest on. Um, probably took one of these two routes around the center podium here. The walk to the door was just very far. So I lost um, vision probably as he got closer and closer to the building itself. Since it's a Monday morning around 10 o'clock, the courtyard is mostly empty, except for one particular man hanging around a nearby alleyway. He's wearing a black hooded sweatshirt and sunglasses but doesn't attract too much attention. He 
people were saying that he was just standing here right on the corner by this door. Palomares collects the theater's deposit, $56,000, places it in the duffel bag and heads back out the doors. But just as Palomares rounds the ticket booth, five of the six gunshots hit Palomares in the head. He had no idea. It came on him so quickly and was shooting immediately. He didn't have a chance. Police say the gunman grabs the money bag and sprints down the side alley. A mountain bike is waiting for him. Just ran, got on his bicycle. I mean, it's a perfect route down the alley, hang a right, and now you're on another street into the neighborhood, in an industrial neighborhood. Back in the armored truck, James Duncan is unaware of his partner's fate. The trucks are armored. The glass on it's very, very thick. And you combine that with a diesel uh, engine in there, and it's just so loud that you can hardly hear anything. Duncan says a man runs up to the truck and frantically points to the movie theater. But Duncan can't get out. Company protocol requires him to stay with the truck. He inches the vehicle forward to get a better look. I'm freaking out at that point in time. Like my partner's down. I call the station, let them know what's going on. The company dispatcher calls 911. One of my guys have been shot. My driver just called and said, our, our guard is down. He's been shot, and he's been shot several times. Please get somebody there. I mean, there's all sorts of things that run through your head. Like, I wish I could have just drove the truck all the way over there. I mean, it just, it took a lot out of me to try not to do something. That's for sure. The armored car guy is here. The, 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 the guy has been shot at least six times. I don't, I think he's dead. Look, the, the officer is still moving. Okay. We'll get, we'll get some help there, sir. Within minutes, police converge on the site. James Duncan's worst fear is confirmed when he finally exits the truck. His partner is dead. Keith Palomares is just 24 years old. Before I saw him, I thought there'd be some hope, but he lost a lot of blood. And when they got him on the stretcher, it, it, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. Police cars spread through the Phoenix streets, but the authorities don't have much to go on. The murderer appears to have made a clean getaway. Very few witnesses. Imagine just kind of wandering around and hear six gunshots. People turn and look, and then you see a, a guy in a hoodie just running. Nowadays, there's, there's video everywhere. Uh, back in 2004, there wasn't as much video as there is now, and it was difficult for us to gather. Lance Lysing is an FBI special agent brought in to work the case. Attacking an armored car is a federal crime. We were getting uh, tips and reports, dozens if not hundreds of them. Any mail on a bike was, was being called in at the time. Later that afternoon, the cops finally catch a break when a police helicopter spots a bicycle in an office park. The blue and silver mountain bike is found under bushes, just a half mile from the murder scene. Oh, the bike was huge. We needed evidence. We didn't have much at the scene. 
you can get any DNA or print evidence off that bike, we can try to track it to something. Investigators find exactly one fingerprint on the bike, but it's just the clue they need. They enter it into the FBI's National Fingerprint Database. And by the next morning, they have a suspect. In Phoenix, Arizona, an armored car guard is dead, and the murderer is on the loose. But just one day after the killing, the police have a suspect. A fingerprint off the mountain bike is matched to 35-year-old Jason Derrick Brown. He got out cleanly as far as he was aware. He didn't feel like he left any evidence behind. He missed wiping off one fingerprint off the bike, and that's what, what got us to him. Brown's fingerprints are in the FBI database because of a petty theft he and his brother committed four years earlier. They were at a golf shop. One of them would distract a clerk, and the other one would steal high-end golf clubs. Despite the one-time conviction, investigators learn that Brown's background doesn't suggest a cold-blooded killer. Originally from the luxurious coastal town of Laguna Beach, Brown is the epitome of a California golden boy. He looks like Sean Penn. He's got a typical California surfer boy look. He does not fit the profile of a typical criminal that I've seen and that I've arrested and, and investigated. Not even close. Brown's family is active in the Mormon community. His dad was involved in some newspaper businesses, had other businesses there in that uh, Laguna Beach. By all accounts, uh, nice family. After graduating from Laguna Beach High School in 1987, Jason Brown spends two years as a missionary in France. He went his Mormon mission to Paris, learned to speak French there, wrote letters back to friends and family how he really loved his time there as a missionary. After his mission, Jason gets married and goes to college. He eventually enrolls in the master's program at the prestigious Monterey Institute of International Studies. Definitely had everything available to him. Didn't grow up impoverished, didn't grow up somewhere where he had to claw and scratch and fight to get out of. I mean, he grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. While he appears to be a privileged, clean-living Mormon on the outside, Brown's home life isn't exactly as it seems. Jason's siblings tell investigators that their dad, John, had a warped view of family road trips when they were kids. A lot of trips to Tijuana, getting loads and loads of money and bringing them back. Some of those trips were reported to have organized crime ties. Not sure exactly if the money was related to gambling or drugs or what it was related to, but there were um, some suspicious activity involving his, his father. In 1994, investigators say John Brown makes one final road trip. In the mid-90s, his father withdrew a large amount of money from his bank account, and his car and him were gone. About four months later, his car was found in Brownsville, Texas, on the Mexican-U.S. border. But he, he's never been seen from or heard from again. Around the time of his father's disappearance, for reasons still unknown, Jason's life appears to change. It was sometime after, when he came back from being that missionary, that they described him as becoming focused on 
monetary items, wealth, image, uh, you know, toys in life. Jason spends his days golfing. It's his obsession. He collects expensive cars and other big boy toys. He had beautiful cars, BMW, um, it was a three series back then. He had motorcycles, ATVs, uh, jet skis, a ski boat. This formerly clean living Mormon also discovers the joys of sin. Friends and family tell investigators that Brown loves to drink and take the party drug GHB, known for its sexual enhancement. Gambling in Vegas becomes a favorite pastime. So I think he got kind of stir-crazy, his playboy life. And I think the playboy life took over him, divorced his wife, and then out came the real Jason Brown. Throughout the late 1990s and early 2000s, Jason takes the party on the road. He bounces around several cities in the western United States, never staying in one location for too long. He would couch surf. He would just uh, mooch off of uh, roommates. Wouldn't pay rent. I mean, he had girlfriends at, at most of these places as well. For a surfer of ocean waves and friend couches, it might be surprising that Jason Brown is always flush with cash, according to investigators. What he did in each one of these places isn't quite sure. Nobody ever reported him having a legitimate job where he'd go to work, clock in, clock out, get a regular paycheck. That just didn't happen. Investigators say he likely funds his lifestyle through a series of scams. In Austin, Texas, Brown starts up the picture-perfect modeling agency with some friends. The feds say the company promises college students dreams of stardom for the low price of just $5,000. They would try to advertise for college co-eds to get headshots and photos taken by them, and they would take the fees that the um, girls would pay to get those photographs to start that modeling career, and they'd take it, and nothing would happen with the headshots. They would just sit. Salt Lake City, Brown buys a bungalow in the trendy Sugar House neighborhood. He officially registers two businesses to the home, on-the-doorstep advertising and Toys Unlimited. But investigators say the companies don't actually sell anything. When asked about work or asked about his business, he would always kind of talk in vague terms or, you know, change the conversation angle to go somewhere else, but he would never really answer any question, because it really didn't exist. One of Jason's favorite pastimes is telling people he sells expensive golf equipment. He loved playing golf, so he spent a lot of time in golf courses. He would say he was doing that to import and export golf supplies, high-end golf equipment. Authorities say Brown's ventures are mostly small-time cons. But things change when he moves to Arizona. In May 2003, wandering con man Jason Brown needs a new source of revenue and sets his sights on Phoenix, Arizona. He attends an open house in the Ahwatukee foothills, an isolated neighborhood in the shadow of South Mountain. It's a uh, pretty nice neighborhood. Um, and I think he fit in in that area, drove the nice cars and kind of a cool guy. 
Ellen Robinson is the realtor tasked with finding a renter for the house. She says Brown is intrigued by the home's three-car garage. Just said he had a lot of toys and things that he needed storage. You know, a lot of times people will walk around and open cabinets, and he didn't do that. It was fast. Ellen is quite familiar with the house. She lives right next door. Brown tells her that he's an exporter of golf equipment to Asia. He wastes no time moving his toys onto the property. He had um, a Jeep Rubicon, the big black Escalade. He had the BMW, three ATVs for adults, and then he had a small one for children. While Jason's sweet rides make him look like a success, investigators say they're the product of yet another scam, bank fraud. Everything was underwater. Everything, um, the banks wanted them back the least BMW, the least Cadillac, all the toys were never paid for. The Fed say he routinely uses fake addresses and P.O. boxes to secure bank loans. Creditors have been on his trail for years. If you're a con man and you've defrauded all these bank loans and you've got this Jeep Rubicon that you don't want anybody to find, so you're not going to give them your real address. You're just going to keep them hidden so they don't get repossessed. Brown's toys help endear him to his new neighbors. He offers to take Ellen's family out for a ride on his Mastercraft speedboat. He'd have it in front of the house getting ready for whatever boating expedition with his friends and stuff, and he just invited us one day, and yeah, it was, it was a fun time. Ellen's family becomes close with Brown. Her 10-year-old son, Tyler, is especially fond of his cool new friend. Tyler would, you know, go there and hang out to watch sports on TV because he had a, you know, big screen TV. They'd play catch in the street and, yeah, they hung out. And what's not to like? Jason Brown acts like a big kid. He loves to water ski, ride ATVs in the desert, and go mountain biking. His Escalade had uh, a DVD player, PlayStation in it, and yeah, you know, we'd sit there and play PlayStation and listen to music and drink all night long. Michael Campbell lives across the street from Brown. He says partying with his neighbor is always an adventure. Jason loves to be the center of attention. He insists on buying everyone drinks at the bar and he always carries a lot of money. It was probably a wad of cash about that big around. That seemed to be his main reason for living, is to maintain that lifestyle, maintain that image of wealthy, outgoing, charismatic, the, the party guy. But in early 2004, the party ends. After less than a year in Arizona, Brown tells neighbors that he needs to leave immediately. He told me was that his brother's wife was diagnosed with cancer, and he needed to move back to California to be there to support the family during this time. He packed all of his belongings up. Uh, he slept on an extra couch that we had upstairs, and the next morning, he was gone. Investigators say they aren't sure what Jason does in the following months, but they do know where he eventually turns up. On Monday, November 8, 2004, Jason Brown is back in Utah. 
visiting a gun shop in suburban Salt Lake City. He pulls up and it was a silver BMW. I remember we noticed that because it was kind of out of place in that neighborhood. Clark Aposian is a firearms instructor at the store. He says Jason is insistent on taking a concealed carry class that day. And we have a regular classroom and he's taught everything from firearm handling, you know, the grip, the stance, the loading, the unloading, the side alignment, that type of thing. The four-hour class ends with a session at the gun range. Clark says Brown's skills are shaky. I could tell just by the way he was handling it, where his trigger finger was going, where the muzzle direction was going, uh, just the basic safety concerns that he hadn't had much experience, if any, he hadn't had good experience. After a half hour of instruction, Clark says Brown's skills improve significantly. When the class finishes, Jason needs eager to buy a gun of his own. Now, having just seen him shoot and knowing what his limitations were, I suggested that he get a nine millimeter, somewhat like he had just fired. He was insistent, no, he wanted a smaller gun and a more powerful gun. Brown buys a 45 caliber Glock Model 30, a compact yet powerful handgun popular with plain-clothed police officers. He asked, you know, what is the most powerful handgun ammo for this gun? And the top of the line at that time was Corbon ammunition. It's a very high-pressure, light bullet weight load. So it goes very fast, has a lot of power. Brown buys two boxes. But before he can be on his way, he must first take care of some paperwork. Clark photographs Jason and gets his fingerprints. He must also fill out a background check. We call into the state, the Bureau of Criminal Identification, and they'll run that to see if he has any criminal history or is prohibited from purchasing the firearm. And it came back affirmative that he could purchase it, and so he walked out with that gun. Late November 2004, just two weeks after purchasing a gun in Utah, Jason Derrick Brown returns to Arizona. He calls his former neighbor, Ellen Robinson, and asks a favor. He called me to say he was driving down from Vegas, and he said, can I come stay with you? And I'm like, of course. Jason lives in Ellen's spare bedroom for about a week. He tells her he's in town for business. But rather than exporting golf clubs, Investigators say Brown is working on other plans. What he was doing was conducting surveillance of the armored car in the area, trying to determine where the armored car routinely goes. He copied times, copied dates. Monday mornings, what time do they get here? Tuesday, what time do they get here? The day before Thanksgiving, Jason moves out of Ellen's house and into a hotel room just south of the movie theater. I offered him to stay and have Thanksgiving with us, but he said no, he's going to get back to his family. And... On Sunday, the FBI says he grabs his gun and drives out to the Tonto National Forest, about 40 miles northeast of Phoenix. He places paper plates in mesquite trees and practices target shooting with his new weapon. In Arizona, as long as you're in certain areas of the desert, away from uh, roads, you can, you can shoot anywhere out there. The National Park is a popular recreation spot. 
The rolling hills and rugged beauty make it ideal for camping and off-roading. That's one of the major areas I go to. There's lakes up there and uh, lots of trails. I love to camp out. My son, he likes to do it just as much. Max Newton and his 10-year-old son have spent the long holiday weekend riding ATVs in the desert. But just as they're packing up their gear and preparing to head back home, Max is startled by a familiar sound. It's kind of like a whizzing sound flying through the camp. Um, bullets whistle when they come close to you, especially if they start skipping off the ground. Jason Brown is unknowingly shooting at their campsite 200 yards away. Max Newton grabs his son and takes cover behind his truck. One bullet strikes the driver's side door. I was yelling, stop shooting. There's people up here. Quit shooting your gun. When the gunfire ends, Newton hops on his ATV and rides toward a silver BMW parked along the dirt road. He was taking a paper plate out of a bush, and his trunk was open. I confronted him, said, look, you, you, you hit my truck. I said, you know, a bush is not a good backstop. Brown apologizes profusely and tells Newton that he'll gladly pay for any damage to his truck. Jason Brown proceeds to write down his name, address, and phone number on the back of a paper plate. He even showed me his driver's license so that I could see that he was writing down the actual information that was true. Brown tells Newton to call him when he gets an estimate of the damage and then makes a curious request. Brown specifically asks him not to remove the bullet from the truck. And he said, no, you, you don't need to get that thing out of there. Just leave it be. He kind of wanted that bullet to be forgotten about, I think. The following day, after extensive preparation, investigators say Jason Brown is finally ready to put his plan in motion. So what he did that morning, likely, was that he left his hotel room. He had a BMW and a mountain bike. A lot of people said they saw him shoving this mountain bike in the back of this little two-seater BMW. Officers say Brown parks the BMW at an office park, then rides his mountain bike to the strip mall. According to investigators, Brown knows the armored car should arrive at the movie theater around 10 a.m. This was a really good plan on Jason's part. Unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, hate to say it, got caught with their pants down on this one. There was no demand for money. There was no struggle with the guard. It was just boom, 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 boom. Five rounds from the Glock 45. Dave Sislak is a former journalist for the Arizona Public. The victim was hunted. This was a planned, premeditated attack on a young guy who was just doing his job for one reason, for money. With the $56,000 in hand, investigators say Jason rides his bike to where the BMW is stashed. I believe his car was parked under here and uh, came around with his bike to this area. And from here, the way we found the bike, most likely just tossed the bike, drives away uh, very quietly without no one ever knowing he was here. Police say Brown is back at his hotel room in minutes before emergency crews even arrive at the murder scene. 
By the time the investigation starts, detectives say Brown is already on the run for hours. Surveillance cameras at the hotel eventually show Jason lingering at the front desk. From there, he drives to a nearby health club. Investigators say he carries a black bag inside, then likely showers and changes clothes. He drops his bag in a locker, and we have film of that, and then he leaves, and then he comes back a couple hours later, picks up the same bag, and that's probably the money bag. After leaving the gym, Brown drives nearly 300 miles to Las Vegas, where he keeps a storage unit. In that storage unit were his Cadillac Escalade, a boat, various other items. He parked the BMW in that storage unit and took the Cadillac Escalade and then drove to Orange County. As Brown is driving, he makes and receives numerous phone calls from family and friends. One of the calls is from Max Newton, who got an estimate on his truck that morning. Jason's bullet from the previous day did $1,300 worth of damage. I immediately called his cell phone, and he said, no problem, I'm going to get a check, and I'll send you the check to take care of the damages. Newton says Brown is calm and collected on the phone. Yeah, he, he talked to me right after he'd already killed that guy. Some of the things I think about in retrospect are very disturbing. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. The day after the brutal murder of Keith Palomares, Jason Brown kicks back in Orange County, California. He crashes with his sister, who lives in a townhouse in Rancho Santa Margarita. Unexpected visits from Jason are not unusual. We went out to eat a couple times, I know, with his sister. Uh, his sister described sitting on the couch watching movies with him at night there in Orange County. Investigators believe Jason's sister has no idea what he has done. He acts casual. He visits their brother David, who lives nearby in Laguna Niguel. The two men play golf and visit an indoor firing range. Jason even does some banking. He did make some deposits into his Wells Fargo bank account, small deposits, $2,000, $3,000 at a time. Thanks to the fingerprint on the bike, investigators have a solid lock on Jason Brown's identity. The FBI knows he has family in Orange County and notices the bank activity. We knew he was in California very quickly. We knew the area he was in, and we were getting very, very close at pinpointing exactly where he was to put the handcuffs on him and arrest him. But as the feds close in on Brown, their pursuit hits an unexpected snag. On December 6th, exactly one week after the murder, the Phoenix Police Department holds a press conference. 
They announced Jason Derrick Brown as the main suspect in the murder and asked the public to keep an eye out for the fugitive. We had his information. We knew who he was. We're working it. And it was decided to release that information to the media. A high-profile case like this, the public wants to know. But unfortunately, publicity can sometimes be a double-edged sword. I got home from work and I turned the TV on and the news was on and there was his picture. And I didn't believe it. Ellen and other friends try calling Brown. TV and newspaper reporters also work the phones. Part of the job as a reporter is to look for connections to both the victim and the suspect. So we had been calling a variety of people. Unfortunately, word got to Jason that uh, an arrest warrant had been issued for him, and he was a suspect in this homicide. By the time FBI agents converge on his sister's house, Jason Brown is gone. The feds miss him by less than two hours. It's frustrating. It's very frustrating. Uh, again, looking back, and I remember when it was released, I'm like, oh, we shouldn't release this, you know? But, you know, it's out of out of my hands. And um, that decision was made, and we have to live with it. It's hard to think about because uh, I believe Jason could have been brought to justice back then. He could easily be uh, in front of a judge, and, and, and justice could be served. But it didn't happen that way. Back in Arizona, Max Newton is stunned when he watches the news that night. So I went over and I got the paper plate that he'd written his name on, and I just look at it and said, that was him. He calls the Phoenix police and tells them of his encounter with Brown the day before the murder. He shows them the paper plate with Brown's name, address, and phone number, and the bullet that he dug out of his truck's door. Unbelievable. Uh, a great um, part of this investigation uh, relies with that. The ammunition used in the crime is unique in itself. And with that information, we were able to compare uh, the crime scene evidence to that evidence, and it, it matched. Remarkably, just days after Max Newton contacts the police, he receives an envelope in the mail. It's a check for $1,300 sent from Jason Brown while he was on the lam. I opened it up, and it was a cashier's check for the exact amount. I couldn't believe that he'd actually still mailed me the check. But that's not all that's in the envelope. Jason includes a $50 gift card for Max's son and an apology note. He said how bad he felt that he scared my son. And, you know, and he hoped that my son would get himself something nice. So it's definitely a Jekyll and Hyde kind of move here. I mean, you have a guy who just shot a young armored car guard five times in the head with a 45 caliber handgun, who's still concerned about buying a gift card for a child and, and paying the retribution for the door that he accidentally shot from a stranger in the desert. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
In Southern California, Jason Derrick Brown is on the run, but FBI agents are now tracking his movements. Once again, Brown leaves an electronic trail. He gets cash from an ATM in South Orange County, then stops at a gas station. He used the card to fill up with gas there, somewhere near Dana Point's close to where his sister was, and a video of him filling up his Cadillac. 60 miles south in San Diego, Brown uses another ATM. He's headed straight for Mexico. We put APPs out all over California, California Highway Patrol, all the checkpoints, all the border crossings, Border Patrol customs, they all were all aware um, that we were looking for him. But suddenly, the trail goes cold. And eventually, they stop using the credit cards, stop using the phones. There's no sign that Jason ever gets to the border. But in a few days, he sends a mysterious package to his brother. The package is mailed from San Diego and contains a bizarre assortment of items. A cell phone, his fitness club membership card, and walkie-talkies. A few days later, a second package arrives. Surprisingly, this one is postmarked Portland, Oregon, 1,000 miles to the north. Jason didn't like Mexico very much. He probably had second thoughts, changed his mind, and thought, hey, maybe I can make it to Canada. The package from Portland contains a laptop computer, more clothing, and a 9-millimeter handgun. He sent the 9-millimeter Glock, not the Glock used to kill Keith, but a Glock that his brother had had at his house and claimed that Jason had stolen from him. Also included are videos. Hey, turn this axe off. Featuring Jason's favorite subject, himself. All his escapades, the I love me pictures of me on a boat and water skiing and all the toys and girls and friends and partying. And it's the, this is the end of Jason Derrick Brown as you know him package. In January 2005, Jason Brown's black Escalade is found at the Portland International Airport. Authorities say it's been sitting there for nearly a month. It was in disrepair. The license plate was taken off the back. Window was broken out. Uh, it looked like somebody wanted us to think it was broken into, but it didn't look ransacked inside. Around the same time the Escalade is found, the feds say Jason's brother David travels to Las Vegas. Agents say David Brown cleans out his brother's storage unit and the missing silver BMW. David goes to Las Vegas, takes the BMW that Jason used during the homicide, and completely has it detailed inside and out, cleans it out completely, and destroys any potential DNA, or hair, or fiber evidence that could be in there for us. The FBI says David Brown previously told them he didn't know what the BMW was. He eventually pleads guilty to felony obstruction of justice and receives three years of supervised probation. As investigators, you try to be objective, but yeah, I mean, there are facts here that indicate that David didn't know what was going on or didn't know at least immediately after it happened. I would be shocked. The BMW was one of the last good chances of gathering clues about Jason's whereabouts. After his adventures in Portland, the FBI says he likely crosses into Canada and ultimately vanishes. So we think that's a likely route. Can I say it, it absolutely happened? I can't. 
But the tips do lead us to believe that he did cross the, the border and he was traveling east through Canada towards the French-speaking portions. In December 2007, the FBI places Jason Brown on their 10 most wanted list, where he remains to this day. For a period of time, Osama bin Laden was on the list right next to Jason Brown. They're offering $200,000 for information that leads to his capture. Jason fit well within the profile of the FBI's top 10 list, mainly because of his background. He has a high education, graduate classes in international business, speaks fluent French. The ability of him to be international is very, very likely. I believe he's out of the United States. I believe he's living a uh, false life, um, probably scamming the person he's with. It's hard to believe, but you may be that person sitting behind a computer collecting a salary every day and hoping that no one will recognize him. Anyone with information on Jason Brown should call the FBI's tip line at 1-800-CALL-FBI or visit their website. We've detained two different individuals who have worked as Sean Penn's body double, uh, thinking they were Jason Brown in the San Francisco area. There's a theory that Jason may have reunited with his father, who disappeared a decade before him, but the feds aren't buying it. Both Jason and his dad had a motivation to flee, and I guess that's a conspiracy theory that they're somewhere together, but we haven't determined that to be a fact. Authorities say just one good tip is all it would take to bring this mystery to an end. We're not going to stop. We're going to keep looking for him. He's going to stay on that top 10 list, and we're going to find him. Thanks for listening to the American Read Podcast, presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.